Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 306. It's titled, Three Approaches to Asset Allocation. Hiraono is a Japanese chef and owner of Sukiyabashi Hiro, a Japanese sushi restaurant in the Ginza area of Tokyo. There's a documentary on him that came out in 2011, Hira Dreams of Sushi. Hira Ono is 94. He was in his mid-80s when this documentary came out, working closely with his son and other sushi chefs at his small restaurant in a Tokyo subway station. He's been making sushi for decades. He said, I do the same thing over and over, improving bit by bit. There's always a yearning to achieve more. I'll continue to climb, trying to reach the top, but no one knows where the top is. He continually tries to get better at what would seem like a fairly straightforward task to make sushi, but it's not. I thought about investing in the same way. One of the first investing books I remember reading was a paperback book I found on the shelf in our basement by Howard Ruff. It was titled How to Prosper in the Coming Bad Years. It was really kind of boring. I remember very little about it other than he talked about inflation and buy gold. But then I went to business school a finance undergrad. I was introduced to modern portfolio theory as a way to go about asset allocation. I went to graduate school and got an MBA with an emphasis on finance. I used to wander the library and would actually sit and page through financial journals, trying to absorb that knowledge. I spent 16 years as an institutional investment advisor and money manager, allocating assets for university endowment and foundations and other not-for-profits. And then the last six years, I've been teaching individuals how to invest, how to allocate their investment portfolio, while also managing my own assets. Former Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes referred to finding the simplicity on the other side of complexity. I've always tried to do that in investing. Investing is incredibly complex. Are there rules of thumb or principles that we can follow that simplify things? So I've spent a number of decades thinking about investing, thinking about the approach to how we save and invest for retirement and then draw down those savings as we live in retirement. Those are really the two investing stages, saving for retirement and retirement living. The first stage, saving for retirement, There are five key aspects. The portfolio objective is growth, growing your retirement portfolio. And as you continue to save, there's a natural dollar cost averaging that occurs as you systematically invest in that retirement portfolio on an ongoing basis. During the saving for retirement phase, you have time to recover from major market losses because If markets fall 50%, you will continue to add more savings and be able to buy at lower valuations. 
In saving for retirement, you can be a more aggressive investor with a higher allocation to stocks because you have time to recover from market losses. The underlying question to saving for retirement is how much do I need to save? Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from one of this week's sponsors, NetSuite. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tecovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow, all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. We can contrast that with retirement living. In that stage, we're accessing our retirement portfolio for expenses. We're worried about sequence of return risk, which is the devastating impact market losses could have in the first few years of retirement. The pattern of returns in a retirement portfolio makes a difference. If performance in the first few years of retirement is very, very strong, your money is much more likely to last than if performance is poor. In retirement living, we typically have multiple sources of income. We have income from our investment portfolio. Sometimes we have a defined benefit pension plan. There are government retirement schemes, such as Social Security in the U.S., and there's annuities. These are guaranteed sources of income. The degree of portfolio aggressiveness depends on to what extent we have those guaranteed income sources to cover most of our retirement expenses. The underlying question is, will my money last? That is longevity risk. With each of those stages, there are three primary approaches to asset allocation. The first is a role-based permanent portfolio. The second is a strategic portfolio mix. And the third is an adaptive asset garden. Let's take a closer look at each of these approaches to asset allocation and the pros and cons of each. First, role-based permanent portfolios. By role-based, we mean each asset in the portfolio is expected to do better under different scenarios. There's a portion in stocks that performs better during periods of economic growth. There is an investment in long-term bonds and cash that tend to perform better during recessionary periods. 
There's holdings of gold and commodities that tend to do better during periods of higher inflation. And then during periods of deflation, the portfolio also holds long-term bonds and cash. Because of these different roles, there's an overall lower allocation to stocks. It's about 25 to 40%. And because of the allocation to long-term bonds and gold, which can be as volatile as stocks, not all the volatility in the portfolio is driven by the stock market. It's more diversified. There are different names for permanent portfolios. One is permanent portfolio, but there's also the all-seasons portfolio and the golden butterfly. The allocations are slightly different. The permanent portfolio has a 25% allocation to the global stock market, 25% to long-term bonds, 25% to treasury bills, and 25% to gold. Golden Butterfly has 20% in the global stock market and an additional 20% in small cap value, so a total of 40% in stocks, 20% in long-term bonds, 20% in short-term bonds, and 20% in gold. Finally, the all-seasons portfolio is a 30% allocation to the global stock market, 40% to long-term bonds, 15% to intermediate-term bonds, 7.5% to commodities, and 7.5% to gold. The benefit of this approach is, is it's simple. There's only four to five holdings. And historically, it has had a very low maximum drawdown, which is the amount of money that is lost during a major sell-off. It's been about 11 to 16%. The golden butterfly, the worst loss was 11%, and it recovered over a three-year period. Permanent portfolio, the worst loss was a 14%, and, and it took five years to recover. And the all-seasons portfolio, the worst loss was 16%, and it took 10 years to recover. So that's definitely a benefit. The con is that it's just not stocks that are volatile. You also have volatility in the long-term bonds and gold. Now, that's a feature, but it's also a con because oftentimes investors aren't comfortable seeing the significant volatility in different aspects of the portfolio. Now, it happens at different times, hence the role-based, so that the overall portfolio has only fallen low double digits, but it still takes some getting used to. The other con is the low expected return, particularly now when bond yields are low. I went ahead and made some return estimates for the different asset types to figure out, well, what is a reasonable expected return for these permanent portfolios over the next decade? I assumed a 4% return for gold per year. Historically, since the 60s, it's been 5.7%, but we've had a very strong run of gold recently. Gold is a speculation. There is no real way to figure out what gold will return. So let's assume 4%. The current yield to maturity on 30-year treasuries is 1.33%. We'll use that as our return estimate for long-term bonds. For stocks, let's assume 7.1%, which is the estimated 10-year annualized return for global stocks and money for the rest of us plus. Short-term bonds is 0.1%. 
That's the current yield. We'll use that for short-term bonds and cash. Commodities, that's also a tough one. If we look at the Thomson Reuters Continuous Commodity Total Return Index, going back to 1973, it's only returned 2% annually before taking into account any interest received on cash that was held in the margin account. This particular commodity benchmark is made up of 17 exchange-traded future contracts. Crude oil, heating oil, natural gas, agriculture such as corn, soybeans, precious metals, gold, copper, etc. 2% per year. Now, with cash earning close to zero, let's just assume 2%. Finally, for intermediate-term bonds using the Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, that Yield to maturity right now is 1.3%. So that will be our estimated returns by asset class. If we look at those weights in those various asset classes, for the permanent portfolio, the expected return is only 3.1% over the next decade. Golden butterfly is 3.9%. We assume the same rate of return for small cap value as for the global stock market. And the all-season portfolio is 3.3%. So the returns are low, and, and the con is every portfolio is the same. So there's no adjustment based on your age, based on your aggressiveness. It's simply, this is the allocation, and you keep it. You can look at all kinds of statistics on permanent portfolios and the different portfolios, risks and return at PortfolioCharge.com. It's an incredible resource to look at these different portfolio types. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. One of the great things about the Great Courses Plus streaming service is you get to learn from actual experts who know how to teach. The Great Courses Plus has real professors, people who have spent years studying their field, and most importantly, know how to teach and engage with people. For example, there's a fascinating course titled Cooking Across the Ages by Ken Abala. In 24 lessons, he goes through different food cultures, such as the Aztecs with their use of tortillas and chocolate. It's a course that combines history and cooking. It's an example of the vast selection of subjects on The Great Courses Plus. There's truly something for everyone and learn to become a great writer, practice mindfulness, or delve into astrophysics. And with the Great Courses app, you can learn anytime, anywhere. Join me and see for yourself. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus today. And right now, you can get a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. So don't wait and sign up using my special URL. Start your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com david. That's the great courses slash David. The second asset allocation approach is a strategic portfolio mix where you have a formal target and do periodic rebalancing. The simplest is the Bogohead three fund portfolio, where there's investments in your home country stocks through an index fund or an exchange traded fund, non home country stocks and bonds. It can be a two ETF portfolio. On Money for the Rest of Us Plus, we have some static model portfolios with two ETFs. 
global stocks, and bonds. For younger investors, the strategic portfolio mix tends to be more stock-heavy. There's an opportunity to add value stocks, growth stocks, small-cap, and mid-cap. This strategic portfolio mix is an outgrowth of modern portfolio theory, where for each asset class, you develop an expected return, a volatility assumption, and then correlation, how the different asset classes move together. The goal is to select an asset mix that has the maximum expected return for a given level of volatility, to earn sufficient on the portfolio to generate a positive real return, a return that the portfolio still grows above inflation. It is an approach that we include some models on money for the rest of us plus, as well as an asset allocation spreadsheet to help individuals decide a strategic mix. In our case, we have expected return for numerous asset classes, but instead of volatility, we look at maximum drawdown, how much could you lose, and the average time to recover. The benefit of this approach is there's more options. There's not just one portfolio. You can have portfolios that focus more on capital preservation, and then you can have aggressive portfolios, and they vary generally based on how much is allocated to stocks. It's model-based, so there's an asset allocation model run. There's an optimization run, so it fits well with traditional financial planning. It's the approach that I used with consulting clients as an investment advisor. You have a target, and you can follow a rebalancing schedule, rebalance on a periodic basis on a certain time frame, or rebalance when a particular asset class in your portfolio breaches some threshold. It falls below a minimum. Oftentimes, there's a target, and then there's ranges around those targets. The cons to this approach is, is it can lead to an over-reliance on expected return in modeling. Every asset class has to have those three assumptions, expected return, volatility, and the correlation between other asset classes. Some asset classes just don't lend themselves to that. Private capital, commercial real estate, that doesn't trade every day, so it doesn't have volatility like you see in the public markets. And so you end up making up volatility numbers. I did that as an investment advisor. We needed an assumption for every asset class. If we didn't have historical data or some way to determine the volatility, then we just came up with an assumption that this is how volatile venture capital would be if it was a publicly traded investment. Another con is as expected returns fall, such as very low yield for the bond market, it tends to push clients to want to be more aggressive, to try to reach that target return, as opposed to adjusting spending and expectations based on the current environment. We want to figure out what's that mix to get us to that target without having to potentially reduce our expectations. And that has led to particularly institutional clients, to invest more and more in alternative investments. Another con, it can be a struggle to make portfolio changes because we've run a model and it's optimized. We don't want to necessarily change that without rerunning the model. So I've seen clients become heavily invested in that target mix and reluctant to make any changes. The final approach is an adaptive asset garden approach. Where again, you have multiple asset classes. It's highly diversified with both public and private, but there's a less formal target. 
It's an acknowledgement that different assets have different roles, but rather than have a periodic time frame for rebalancing, we rebalance the portfolio, we add new asset classes and reduce others as conditions change. I like this approach because it's not focused on optimization. Former Bank of England chair Mervyn King said the language of optimization is seductive, but humans do not optimize, they cope. They respond and adapt to new surroundings, new stimuli, and new challenges. So the goal with a asset garden approach is just have a variety of asset classes, just like a landscaper that's planning out a garden. There's guidelines, there's rules of thumb, but there's tremendous creative freedom to build a garden, and in our case, an investment portfolio that aligns with our knowledge, interests, and values. The initial building blocks are cash and stocks, but then we can add additional asset classes. The pros of this approach, it's just greater flexibility. It's easier to make changes as conditions change because we're not so emotionally invested in one target. It's an approach that lends itself to a greater variety of asset types. We can experiment and learn about an asset class, add a small position, see how it behaves, and then increase that allocation without having to rerun our optimization model. Another pro is it, it can still be role-based. We can separate out our asset types by roles. This does better with when the economy is growing. This is better during periods of inflation. The cons, it is more complicated. You're likely to have more asset types. It can be more time-consuming because you're spending more time just learning about new investments. Neither of these three approaches is necessarily better than the other. These are just different ways to go about it. And we can use a combination of them. Consider the different roles. Maybe have more rough targets. We can experiment, as I mentioned. I did this episode because as part of finding the simplicity on the other side of complexity, I've been redoing the videos on Money for the Rest of Us Plus and the tools to help individuals build out a portfolio. And the video on there for asset allocation was, it was several years old and it just didn't really get to what I want to have to help individuals make the selections, to show the different asset allocation approaches and to provide some examples of each. I'm putting together the specific example holdings if, if someone wanted to implement a permanent portfolio. There's some portfolio examples for strategic portfolios and, and models to help individuals develop that. And then for the asset garden approach, I share my portfolio. That's how I invest, as well as discuss different asset types and conditions as part of the monthly investment conditions report. But you don't have to invest like me. You could have a simple two ETF portfolio, global stocks and bonds. Done. Figure out your target rebalance once a year, and it's a minimalist investment approach. Very, very valid. I hope you found this overview of the approaches to asset allocation helpful. If you're in the retirement living stage, you can still use these three approaches with the part of your portfolio that's separate from the guaranteed income portion. Or if you're saving for retirement, you can use these three approaches also. Sometimes it requires us to look at what's available 
within our defined contribution plan, the options there, and then complement that with investments outside of the plan. These are the three broad approaches to asset allocation, the pros and cons. That is episode 306. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. And while you're accessing show notes, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. There's a sign-up box there on the website, and I'll just email you those links each week along with an essay on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week just goes to your inbox. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.